Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, so I'm sitting here, and I'm talking to Ron White, and he is a long-range instructor. So, Ron, I'm going to let you take it from there. Awesome. Well, Luke, I appreciate it. And we have already had a heck of a conversation <laughs> uh, this evening, um, which which is great. But uh, we're going to have some good content, I'm sure. Um, appreciate what you're doing, first first of all. You know, you're um, – I appreciate anyone trying to educate um, folks, you know, educate other hunters and um, – you know, I'm interested in some of the other stuff you're doing too with the, uh, the wilderness foraging and whatnot. I mean, that's, that's good stuff. So anyway, thank you for what you're doing and the time you put into it. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. You bet. So, um, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Sure. So, um, my wife, Denise and I, we run a, um, long range shooting school out of, uh, we live in Northwest Arkansas. Um, the actual school property is about an hour and a half from here. It's um, it's kind of this three-corner area of Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. It's where they all come together, if you can think of that. And then Kansas is in there, too, um, real close to Kansas as well. So you think of that four-state area, that's where we're at. We're right across the Oklahoma line, um, just west of Neosho, Missouri. And... Um, right across the Oklahoma line and, and um, pretty much right there out in the middle of nowhere. And so um, 
we will celebrate um and we you you and i were talking about how 2020 we're kind of just hitting the fast forward on that year. <laughs> yes. uh, leaving her in the rear view mirror you know and moving on um but we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary as an llc doing this um uh since i retired and um i really started right before i retired from the military and um we started this and I just had to keep doing it. So it's just a part of me. And, and um, so we're going to fast forward that and celebrate the 10 year anniversary next year. You know, we have had to postpone a couple of classes so far this year. And like I was telling you a minute ago, we're super excited. The instructors are like caged animals ready to get out, get behind a spotting scope and, and uh, get some shooting done here in two weeks. Two weeks, we'll, we're doing our May class. That's awesome. So, and I, yeah, and a lot of those are April. Uh, they're postponed April, folks. So, oh. you know, I, what I did is I just canceled, or I, I didn't cancel. I just had Denise go on the website and just not take on any new students for the year when all this, you know, hit us uh, a couple months ago. And uh, I just said, let's, because I need to place these students, they're going to obviously, if I'm having to postpone a class, their first priority to get them in. And so we made it work. And then now we've opened the classes back up. We still have some spots for, um, oh man, don't get me lying on this, but I, <laughs> Denise, she runs all that. Uh, I think August, maybe a couple of spots and then September, quite a few spots still, because uh, we've kept those closed. Um, close to registration for the last two months during this COVID-19 thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so definitely anyway, impacted everybody in different ways. Yeah, it has. And and I'll tell you right now, I mean, we're blessed either way. Um, we have a roof over our head. We're in good shape, you know, and this is not my full-time career. Um, I'm a financial advisor for, and have been for the last 25 years, a parallel career with the military. Obviously there's a lot of military leave there, but, um anyway so yeah it's um this is a huge part of us um we do seven to eight classes a year typically a lot of times we'll do one class out west somewhere um typically and uh now this is a more advanced class in in conjunction with an out west hunt like an elk hunt uh we did a desert mule deer hunt with a group these were all a group of alumni they had all been through at least one class, if not two. And we try to do that every year or two. Um, go on an out west hunt somewhere with a group. So we'll do an advanced long range hunter class out there um, the, a couple of days before the hunt. And then um, we typically hunt with outfitters out there. Um, I do not have the time, unfortunately. I love backpacking. Mm -hmm. uh, long distance backpacking, Denise and I do some of that. We love it, but I, I just don't have the time, um, to commit to that. You know, I just don't, um, <clears throat> have to be back at the office the, the day after, you know, or two days after the hunt. So, so when you guys go out there, then are you guys, uh, like packing in on, on horses and packing in pack mules or, or you're not doing back country. It's more like day hunts. No, they're, uh, yeah, almost all of them. So 
we hunted with one um, outfit out of uh, just south of Jackson, Wyoming for about four years in a row, maybe five. It was great. We just had a lot of success. Um, and uh, it was all so he was a day use only permit holder. Um, and the Bridger Tetons are a little different and they do require a guide um, for non-resident as well. So you have to have a guide there. Um, it, and, and, you know, I'm telling you the best of my ability. I, 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 there could be some areas there where you don't, but I, I don't know. But um, anyway, so we would, that's good and bad. I would, I'll tell you this, it would be easier on the hunter and easier on the outfitters, easier on the horses if you had a camp somewhere. <laughs> right. Um, because we would get up at like three in the morning drive an hour and a half to a trailhead and then ride, you know, get on the horses, still dark and uh, ride hour and a half to two hours. And when the daylight starts popping up, then you get your little perch and you start glassing, you know, and, uh, and then you get home, you get back to the outfitter's house, 11 o'clock. But if you get a bull down, you'll get back at two or three in the morning I mean, it is a really tough deal, um, or it can be, you know, I had a blast, loved it, but by day four, day four, day five, you're smoked. Yeah. You know, so a lot of folks, you know, I, I know there's a lot of folks that I have utmost respect and I know we'll talk about this in a lot of different ways throughout this conversation, I'm sure, um, on respect of our other hunters, um, and different types of hunters and whatever, but I have a ton of respect for do-it-yourselfers. Love it. I've done a lot of that white, you know, obviously I don't, I'm a whitetail hunter. I grew up since I was a little bit of kid, um, whitetail hunting and um, been a do-it-yourselfer for years there. But when it comes to out West, there's just, you know, um, there's a lot of logistics there. And I would love to do it at some point. Uh, my dad and I did a couple of years. It's been a, t a ton of years ago. I mean, I was a teenager. We've we've gone out. We took our horses out. We did do-it-yourself hunts um, unsuccessfully, but uh, we did a couple of different times. Was but, that was uh, that pretty hard on the elevation uh, adjustment for even is, the horses? It and, is because that I, I imagine they have to acclimate just like you would. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I that, saw a big difference in their performance out there for sure. Yeah, that that'd make it tough. That that's one yep. thing I always thought about. I've talked with people. I thought about how my property maybe getting a couple of llamas and taking them with me, you know, so I could take them yeah. out west. But they're like, yeah, you'd have to let them acclimate just like you. It's not like you're going to hit the trailhead and go running and think because you got a llama exactly. you can uh, have them carry all that weight with without acclimating. So. That's yeah, something. nine thousand feet from home. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's. I listened to your llama um, podcast as well. That was awesome. Loved it. <laughs> that is one that if if you ever want to do by yourself, Mark is yes. a wealth of knowledge. And and I'm I'm about I'd say a quarter of the way through his course, and the the e scouting course that he's got at the uh, mm -hmm. the Tree Line Academy, and it's just it's blowing me away and it's going and, and the whole way I'm thinking, man, if I only would have done that, if I would have thought to have <laughs> exactly. a plan in place like that, because honestly there, there was, 
and, and I've only been on one elk hunt and I plan on going it. Well, there was kind of a maybe in 2020, but that's not happening. I want to go I, learn a little bit more. So I'm actually going out and, uh, meeting up with those guys and doing the Western hunting summit. So there'll be, uh, Mark, Mark will be out there and, uh, Ryan Lampers and all those guys that Ryan puts it on. And so hopefully nice. I can learn as much as I can from them and then apply that DIY <laughs> to the 2021. And uh, at this rate, hopefully 2021 will be a heck of a lot better than 2020, but, uh, it's, it's going to be, it is, <laughs> man. We're, we've got this pent up. We're ready to go. Yeah. Get this baby open. My biggest, my biggest fear right now is I have not, I have not done any conditioning at this point. And, no, that's a big deal. And, and I'm going to be going out there in June. So <laughs> yeah. that's a big deal. <clears throat> yeah. And but you I'm, know what, what I found out there and it doesn't truly what I was going to say earlier about, yeah, I know there's a lot of different opinions out there about do it yourself versus outfitter. And there's, you know, there's, this um and, and i'm sure this is where i say i'm sure we'll talk about this when we get in, possibly into long-range hunting perspective as well um i'm big about let's respect each other you know let's respect each other i don't care if you're archery rifle muzzleloader with an optic or without or traditional let's respect each other first and foremost that's who i am i'm going to respect you respect me so you know, um, I see a lot of a lot of this non-resident issue. Um, I mean, there's some serious hate for non-residents out there on some of these forums, and and there's, you know, I understand that people are going to spew hate all over the place. Um, there's, um, I mean, that's we need a place to go. You know, um, yeah. It's I know I know. I know what they're saying, but at the same time, there's some good folks coming, coming there as well. Well, I think not, not just that, but the amount of money they spend that they give back into the local economy. I mean, those people are stopping, they're buying gas, they're buying, you know, food, absolutely everything from those, those local stores. And not to mention the fact that those, a lot of those non-residents are carrying a pretty big burden when you consider the price of the tag that they're paying versus that's, that's a resident right. the resident's paying a quarter if if that maybe a 16th yep. of the cost of what a non-resident tag is and and if they want to completely shoulder that just because they don't like the non-residents then that's something that they really have to take into consideration the amount well, that not. they want for their budget yeah. so it's that's, that's right it's a terrible thing it's a touchy issue but I, it is you know i i my opinion is is if somebody wants to hunt it sustainably and ethically they have it's 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 public land it it doesn't matter if you're a resident of that state or not i mean we all contribute to those federal lands any way you look at it so yeah it it saddens me to think that people are out there like that and i've seen it i saw something that Corey jacobson posted like last year the year before and it was a note that he had a rental truck and so it had like a an out-of-state plate and he was hunting in his home state and somebody slapped oh slapped a, a note on his windshield and said, "You know, go home, non-res, blah blah blah. This this isn't your hunting ground. Something to that effect." And it's just it's horrible. It is absolutely. I mean, they didn't damage anything on the vehicle or anything. Right. But either way, I mean, that's not the way to be. 
hunters should help other hunters because for sure there's not enough of us out there and it, it, i mean there seems to be a lot of them that will come to hunting but then actually retaining them retentions and right and re-education is huge so it's it's this is this is what it's all about and and i bring that up for a reason i brought it up because it is a sensitive issue and i, I just want to talk about it and i, I think it's because the more we talk about this, the more we get it out, maybe, just maybe, we can get some folks to step back for a second and say, you know, they had a good point. Uh, and they didn't seem like a bad fella. I, and personally, I have never had an issue as a non-resident going to New Mexico, going to Colorado, going to Wyoming, uh, Kansas. Uh, I hunted Kansas whitetail for years uh, on, a, on a lease there. But um, anyway, um, never. And, and when we go with outfitters, I mean, I haven't been with an outfitter for years on private land. It's all been public. Um, and uh, it's awesome. You know, it's absolutely fair chase. It's, it's tough every single time. It's super tough physically, uh, mentally demanding and good stuff. So I respect them all, though. I just think if we step back every now and then and we say, you know, we're all we're all carrying the same flag here. We're doing it for the right reason. We're, like you said, ethically, we're feeding our families. We're conservationists. Um, anyway. Well, that's I that's mean, my, I just that's did, my rant. I just did an interview with a girl uh, a couple of days ago, and she is part of an outdoor roundtable alliance. And that's who she works with now. And it's not about just uniting hunters, but other organizations or groups that, you know, mountain bikers or skiers and everybody else. Mm -hmm. So we can utilize the public lands without stepping on each other's toes and try and say, hey, look, you know what? They're, they could possibly be threatened either way, not just in hunting rights, but other rights as well. And if we don't make our voice heard and realize that, we get a bigger piece of the pie and, and, you know, a bigger seat at the table by doing this. And, uh, it seems like it's working pretty well. So that, well, that's, that's wise. Yeah. That's a good thing too. Much, much stronger voice when you're in it together. Right. Absolutely. And if we could just, you know, I mean, and I, we were talking about it and it's, you know, it's <clears throat> common ground, literally common ground, the ground that we all share for whatever purposes we want to use it for. And, and, using it finding common ground to come together instead of trying to be divisive and hopefully we can do that but ron i got a i got a question for you so i know you were shooting when you were younger you got into a little bit of uh competitive shooting if i'm not mistaken and so after that you kind of got out of shooting right right and then i was i was burned out a bit yep and then you you ended up going um kind of you want to talk you actually got a pretty cool story because i that's where my my first elk hunt was is who you worked for is in the same area and i thought that was just so cool when i heard you no kid kind of telling that story and it's it's pretty amazing so you you want to lead off with that you did sure. you ended up not going into the military right well that's that's right i when eight days after i graduated high school I went straight to an outfitter, um, Ed Wiseman from Tonita, Tonita Outfitters, and um, started working. I had called him and 
you know, worked it all out and needed a ruler. And, and I was a horseshoer too. I started shoeing horses when I was 14. And uh, I was breaking horses when I was probably 15 and um, just really self-taught at that point. I did go to horseshoeing school later. Uh, matter of fact, when I was in the military, I went TDY and uh, temporary duty and um, went to Oklahoma City Horseshoeing School. Um, but anyway, um, but on the horse training, that was all self-taught reading books. Um, I went to a John Lyons symposium when I was real young and, uh, and just, I loved horses and, and I was pretty decent at it. You know, I mean, I was natural. Um, it's kind of hard to say you're good at something. Uh, I'd rather somebody else brag, you know what I mean? Um, but, um, anyway, so I was doing that really, um, and uh, so I went out and um, the last thing, I'll, I'll tell you this, one little funny thing, um, you know, when you're 18 years old and know it all, um, and I, I really wasn't a bad kid when I was 18, but my dad and I always butted heads a little bit. And um, <laughs> I can relate to that. The, yeah, yeah. Um, he was a lot smarter when I got older, though, you know, mm-hmm. and um, but at that point, he said, have you talked to him about horseshoe? what's he going to pay you for horseshoe? And I said, well, I'll talk to him when I get out there, dad. He said, well, I think you're probably ought to talk to him about that before you get out there. Cause at the time I was making $25 a head for horses. And I mean, that's, you know, I had planned that that was a really fair, um, it would usually take me about an hour to shoe a horse. And, um, so I was still pretty new, you know, very very hard work <clears throat> anyway i get out there he has 28 head some of them are mules and one of the first things after i met him you know i said uh, so ed i wanted to talk to you about um you know the horseshoeing as well and he said sure go right ahead and um i said well um so i know my wages will be 125 dollars a week room and board but um, what about, you know, I wanted to negotiate the horseshoeing and he said, well, that's, that's in your weekly wages. And of course, then I knew my dad was right. So <laughs> anyway, I learned a valuable lesson at that moment, but, um, um, and he had a big pile of, um, he, he was, Ed, Ed was a, a very resourceful, I think resourceful is a great word to use. I asked him where the horseshoes and nails and all that stuff. He kept all that stuff and, and uh, takes me into the edge of the barn and there's a pile of rusty horseshoes with nails in them and dirt and that have been pulled off. I mean, it, this was a four foot tall pile of horseshoes. He's like, there you go. There's your horseshoes. And if any horseshoes that are listening to this are going to understand how long it takes you to clean clean that shoe up and prepare it uh to put on you know an old shoe they're just much tougher than a brand new shoe um anyway so it was tough i learned a lot but um so did that for a while um quite a while loved it absolutely loved it he was super tough to work for um but i respected him um greatly and um and uh, I came home sicker than a dog with Giardia, 
um, drinking mountain water. And uh, so, did you not filter it? Was that kind of no, no, no filter? I drank whatever he drank, and uh, <laughs> you know, and and what we would do in camp too. So truly, when we would take folks up for pack trips or whatever um, hunting trips, we would find a little stream next to camp. We would always camp next to a tiny stream. I'm talking like a little spring coming out of out of the side of the mountain, not not the creek, just a little tiny six inch stream. And we would dam it up several times, um, filtering it. And we would dam it up with rocks and then um, smaller rocks and then smaller rocks make like three dams and then we would drink out of the bottom one you know the lowest the lowest one we did not filter any water in that camp we just naturally filtered it Hmm. and um so i mean we did it for months and then um anyway all it takes is one little speck of beaver fever and you're done (laughs) so (laughs) um anyway i so i I went home and, and, uh, it, it was just all meant to be though. You know, it's, my story was crazy. Um, <clears throat> it was all meant to be, I had a direction and I was just being, you know, God had a plan and she kept forcing me to, and I was stubborn, you know, um, I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to do all that, uh, for the rest of my life. And he changed that. So anyway, uh, with opportunities. So, Make a long story short, um, when I got back home, you know, I was always, you know, I went right back into my rotation. I called my clients and my horseshoeing clients and, and, uh, picked them, picked them right back up and started training horses again. I would usually train, you know, be breaking three horses a month or something like that. And, so, uh, use, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to, no. for everybody listening, Ron's talking about Ed, but Ed Wiseman, and it's believed that he is the man who probably killed. He was attacked by the last grizzly bear in Colorado. And that's fact. Isn't there a statue of him or something like that, too, that they erected or something with an arrow in his hand or something? I can't remember how how it went, but yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of a pretty big deal that that was like the last grizzly sighting in Colorado. Yep, and that's and the Ed um, Wiseman that that when he refers to Ed, he's referring to the man who got attacked while he was bow hunting by the last grizzly. So it's a pretty yep. cool story. If if you haven't, everybody that's listening, check it out because it's fascinating, and it's pretty cool <laughs> that you met him, and he must have oh, been yeah. one tough sob. Because oh man, <laughs> let me tell you, he was he was tough. And and I totally respected him. Still do to this day. Uh, he's still still alive. And uh, I went by to see him on a family vacation, and he had already moved. He's up, I think he's in Iowa or somewhere up there now. But I went by his old place in Moffat, Colorado, which is in the middle of nowhere, San Luis Valley, just just off the edge of the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. And uh, that's usually where we went into the Sangre de Cristos. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I passed through them and then went into the San Juans, but yep, yep. that's cool. So then you it was ended cool. up, yeah, that's so you ended up though uh, getting back home because you ended up getting beaver fever, mm-hmm. and then you went into your rotation, and then 
how did you end up getting into the long range from there? Yeah. So, um, fast forward a bunch, um, desert shield, I'll just drop this in there. The reason I went into the military desert shield was happening. It was the buildup for the Gulf war that started happening. You know, all the political, I was watching the news and, and, um, it just hit me, you know, it's like, I need to go. And so I went to the recruiter and signed up and, um, I'd always wanted to be in the army, but, um, my ROTC commander from high school talked me into going in the air force. And so, um, but I wanted to do something with, um, a lot of guns and ammo. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there was this, um, piece of the, of the air force that was, it's kind of the infantry of the air force. They're, they were called security policemen and it's security forces now, but, um, went into security police, like being an MP, but, um, they also guard uh, nuclear weapons. They guard the president, Air Force One, you know, all that kind of stuff. Supposed aliens, um, whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I know nothing about any of that. So, um, <laughs> uh, sworn to secrecy. I'm, I'm kidding. But um, anyway, so here I was, you know, it was about a year later. Um, that was a really long year, though. But uh, about a year later, I was... Um, ended up out in West Texas and um, as a nuclear security specialist and learning the ropes. And it was awesome. Loved it. I went active duty in the beginning and then transitioned to the National Guard later, which was a great move. Great move. And so fast forwarding to the long range, um, late 90s, I, uh, I graduated high school in 90. So um, I've been in the military for um, and I, I retired in 2011. So the first half of my career was the Cold War. And, and I missed Gulf War, by the way. I was in basic training when the Gulf War ended. <laughs> that was, and then the drill instructors came in, you know, celebrating. And I was like, oh man, what am I going to do now? Yeah, I just went through um, this for what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, I loved it. Um, once I got out of basic training, I loved it. And uh, loved Security Police Academy. That was super cool. Um, we started shooting, you know, machine gun, M60 machine guns, 203 grenade launchers, all that good stuff. So I was in hog heaven then. And, and um, anyway, um, so the first 10 years was um, the Cold War. And then 9-11 happened. Um, so there was a, a program that some... Um, some former Marines had started. Um, one of my mentors um, went to DC, matter of fact, and presented the program because he believed the Air Force, he was a Marine Scout sniper uh, for years and years, and he had transitioned over to the Air Force. And um, he, um, you know, showed them that we needed Overwatch, we needed VIP protection, we needed a standoff um, advanced observation team. Um, sniper team and so they they called it close precision engagement course course <clears throat> and it was started in the um, late 90s don't know the exact date but so I went to sniper school while I was in the National Guard and <clears throat> matter of fact all of the instructors at the school were National Guard instructors and they were amazing 
um, didn't like them that much when I went through it. But once once I graduated, I liked them a lot. It was, <laughs> it was a, truly the toughest school I've ever, ever gone through. It was amazing. Loved every minute of it. You just had to, you had to want to be there. You had to have heart. The heart, your heart had to be in it or you were not going to make it. Uh, there's no way. You, you had to want it. Um, is there masters of making people quit? Um, <clears throat> anyway, when I graduated, walking down the, the line, shaking hands, the master started running the program, pulled me aside and asked me if I wanted to come and train to be an instructor. And so um, the day I graduated, that was amazing. And I was super, it was such an honor. And um, so, man, I learned as fast as I could. Um, I taught every class I could, which meant you had to stay up late and studying the content, you know, becoming a so-called subject subject Sweet. matter expert as quickly as possible. Um, but, you know, you're not going to be a subject matter expert the first year. You're going to be a junior instructor. You're going to have some senior instructors correct you in the back of the room on the spot. Um, they're not going to let you feed these students with wrong information. So anyway, you just learn really quick. You better know your stuff when you get in front of these students. It was an amazing opportunity. And at the time, truly, I was scared to death. And I don't know that anybody knows this, but my wife, I was scared to death to talk in front of more than five people. <laughs> you know, I, I did not want, I didn't like public speaking at all. I would just sweat. You wouldn't see it. You wouldn't see it. Um, but after I came out of there and took my, you know, my top coat off or whatever, yeah, it'd be nothing but armpit sweat. Um, <laughs> I was, I was a wreck in front of people, but that, um, I changed my mindset on that. You know, and I said, look, it, th this was so important to me to become a solid instructor at that school. <clears throat> um, that, that was behind the scenes. That was one of my, um, daily goals is to continue and, and I would control my, my positive self-talk and all that good stuff, go through the whole mental process of preparing my mind for stage fright, I guess you could call it. Um, and it, it's not a big deal anymore for sure, but, um, it took me a couple of years and I got through that <clears throat> and, um, we were ramping up big time for Iraq and Afghanistan after, you know, obviously 9-11. <clears throat> I deployed a couple times. Um, <clears throat> and when I came back from Iraq, um, I was a team leader of six snipers in Iraq. And it was an amazing mission. Um, this 2007, um, this month, May and June. May and June. This is always kind of a tough part of the year, um, truly. Um, those were the two worst months of the entire war, May and June of 2007. Ton of, ton of death in those two years. Anyway, um, those were, that, was a, uh, that was the surge. You know, the surge um, got Al-Qaeda moving. It, it really was successful. Now, the surge was very successful, but we lost a lot of people in 2007. So anyway, I did not lose anyone on my team. Um, I'm just talking about our, we're all on the same team, you know, we're all on the same team. doesn't matter what branch. Um, 
we sent those guys home and uh, it was tough. But um, when I came home from I'm really fast forwarding now, but stop me anytime <laughs> if you want to ask anything there, but um, came home and, and um, the Colonel asked me to run the, run the school. Um, he had, he had just let go the, in the uh, program manager um, full-time NCOIC of the, of the program. And that was a major deal because I, you know, I had a full-time career too. So what I would usually do is come teach a class and then go back to work and then skip a class or two and then take leave of absence or take time off from work and go teach another class two or three weeks, you know, at a time. And, um, um, you know, it was, it was tough. It, it's, it's tough having that kind of commitment, but it's just, it's important. It's something bigger than yourself. You know, you just need to, need to do it. And so, um, and that was a big one though. When he asked me if I would run the program, I was honored that, that phone call, I was on my way home from being a guest instructor at the school. And at that time I was a senior instructor. You know, I was a senior instructor at the school at that time. So I said, well, Colonel, give me, give me 24 hours and I'll, I'll give you a call. I need to talk to my wife. It's a big deal. And, um, called Denise and she said, Hey, I support you, whatever we need to do. And, um, we were really ramping up for overseas. So the training, the training load was heavy. And so the program was extremely important, um, for Iraq, Afghanistan missions. You know, all those people were, uh, those trips were coming through our school. They were using as a uh, regional training center, like a, um, RTC, which is really not the right way to, to deploy troops, but they were using our, um, sniper program as a deployment vehicle, you know, a regional training site. And, um, so they were graduating and not even going home. They were going straight overseas and that was their new job. You know, so I did, I did not agree with that, truly. Um, they needed time. They needed time of training. That's just, it's still basic training. You know, it's basic. Um, um, it's not enough. Put, you know, put the process into, into actual effect before you take it in oh, the field. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of training that needs to happen before you go to a combat zone, you know, with that. Uh, anyway, it was way over my head. But, um, just, you know, there's worry about what you can control, you know, and, and you voice your concern for sure. Definitely voice your concern, make it known, and then deal with what you can control or you go crazy, you know. And that's, I, I would say to anyone that's joining the military today, I would give them that advice. Voice your concern respectfully and then worry about what you can control or it'll drive you crazy. Um. So anyway, um, I called him back and, and took it, took the job. And so I was a program manager, took leave of absence from work again, which was really tough. Um, yeah. Really, really tough. Um, but, you know, it's bigger than yourself. So uh, my team at work wasn't real happy about that. But it's um, 
most of them totally understood completely, but um, and we're behind it a thousand percent. And then um, truly, politics won won over, and they moved the school. Um, they moved the school out to El Paso, um, which is extremely great training ground. They moved the school out there, and um, I went out and helped to teach the new instructors and some really solid guys out there and did the instructor development, helped them stand up their first class and, and then went home. And so they moved the school from Little Rock, Arkansas out to El Paso. And so we were done, we were done. And I did have a, an offer to go out there and, and work, but I just didn't want to move my family to El Paso. Understandably. So, yeah. Yep. So I put in my retirement paper as soon as we lost the school to El Paso and um, put in my retirement paperwork. And September 2011, I retired um, from the National Guard. Um, it's, it's even, you know, the National Guard was one of the best things that happened to me in my career. But early on, there's no way I would have gone into the National Guard, would have never considered it. And it's because of perception. The perception was negative. Um, those guys were amazing. They were awesome. And they stay together forever. You know, you know people in that unit, you know. <clears throat> we're an active duty unit. They're going to come and go quickly. You meet somebody and start to get to know them, and then they're gone somewhere. They get moved away. <clears throat> Not so in a guard unit. Yeah, that's... In the guard, that's the guard was extremely... Yeah, you make you a lot. make you a cohesive unit when you get to know people, you know, and they're they're not rotating through or getting a promotion or going somewhere. That that definitely yeah. helps. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of hard to make rank um, in in a guard unit. You have to wait until somebody retires, but <clears throat> it was worth it. So I retired as a master sergeant, and uh, I was the next guy up for senior master sergeant, but. I, I was ready to go, you know, and I wasn't really ready to go, um, but, but it was losing the school, you know, losing, losing that opportunity to teach. I mean, that's what I was really living for um, in the military. I loved it. And uh, I didn't really want to go back to the security police gig. I wanted to stay with the, the CPE, the close precision engagement teams. That's where my love was. So, um, anyway, that was, um, then we started DR long range concepts immediately. And, um, I, I was really afraid to teach civilians, um, from a liability aspect. And it was really just an unknown. I had never taught a civilian before. It was all military that I had taught. And, um, obviously completely comfortable with, um, but it's just different, you know, it's a, it's a different uh, deal, but immediately that was not a problem anymore. I mean, once I taught my first class, we're like, these are amazing people, you know, and that I, I just continue even today. <clears throat> I mean, these are lifelong friends. Most of them. It's amazing. It is unbelievable. The type of people we continue to meet. <clears throat> and I'd always tell a class, you know, refer us your good friends. Don't refer us anyone that, you know, <laughs> I don't want any, anyone that a little crazy or any of that. You refer us your, your good folks, you know, 
good, good, clean Americans. That's who we're looking to train. I'm not looking to train. Um, if they're anti-police, I don't want them there. Um, you know, anti-government, don't show up. I'm, I'm not going to put up with any of that, you know. Um, you, you've, because this is, this is what we're here for, you know. It's a, it's a great country, and we should support it. So, um, and it's, it's, so we do the best we can on vetting, vetting the folks coming in, but that really has taken care of itself um, now, now that we're 10 years in this. I mean, it's, it's amazing that the quality of Americans that come through this class, I, I just still today, I can't believe it. Just solid people. Yeah, we so teach. Um, oh, that's what ahead. I was going to ask you. You rolled right into it, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, we teach um, different phases. So we we have a. Um, I used to call it a, a long range hunting class. Um, then we changed the name to intro intro to long range. It's a two day two day class. It's very everything's compressed, um, but it's great. You know, it's it's a great class. First time I ever did that was a group of doctors. Um, well, some of them were medical service guys, and, but a doctor had called me and said, here's, here's what I'm looking for. So it was really like a custom class years ago, um, probably nine years ago, our first year probably in business. And, and I said, just tell me what you're looking for and we'll put it together. We'll figure it out. And he said, so we, we have two days. That's it. I cannot do a three day. Um, everybody's busy. We have two days. Um, and so just through conversation, we put together this, what I call long range hunter. All of these guys wanted to build confidence at four and 500 yards. You know, that was really their goal. They were going out to Kansas. They were going out West. They wanted to build confidence at four or 500 yards. And I don't mean, um, you know, there's a big difference between shooting a half a box of ammunition at 600 yards and hitting the target once finally. And you're like, yes, I hit it. There's a big difference in that and a first round hit at 600 and understanding why. Yeah. That's confidence. That's what he was after. And that's what I'm after too. I, I don't want to send somebody somebody away um, and, and they're having to, you know, shoot five shots to hit a target. That's not what our goal is. That's not what our goal is. Um, but it takes time. You know, it takes time. So um, there's, um, so the next one up, that's still a great class. Um, that's a great class. So um, the next one is LR1, uh, Long Range Precision Rifle 1, LRPR1. And then there's LRPR2, LRPR3, and that's it. Um, LR1 is, it's all prone. And this is where, um, Everything is detailed. You know, um, we do talk a bit about internal ballistics, but we spend most of our time on terminal ballistics and a small a bit, a small amount of uh, discussion on terminal ballistics. We talk a little more about terminal ballistics in in our more advanced classes, especially for hunting groups. Um, so um, we're talking about from the tip of the crown of the muzzle until the bullet hits the target, that's external ballistics. Um, so that's what we're talking about is the flight of the projectile and the drag factors that can 
affect it in its during its flight. Um, it's just simple as that. Most people in the very beginning, the very first day, first time I get them on a 700 yard line, most people are worried about their trajectory come ups. That's their biggest concern. They're worried about the amount of um, nils or MOAs they're going to have to put on their elevation dial to hit the next target. And then how much more to hit the next target. That's their biggest fear when they're brand new. But I tell them real quick, don't, we've got you. We're going to help you on that. Do not worry. That is going to be one of your easiest parts about long range shooting. The wind is the problem. <laughs> wind is, you know, I've, yeah, I've the, learned that wind is huge. It is. And, and we have some um, very, very effective, um, our wind classes are going to be very effective. They're going to get that in the compressed class. The compressed two-day class, they're going to, um, we'll stop them on the, uh, if we see a wind change, we'll stop them, we'll stop everybody and talk about wind again. Um, and we'll get into advanced tech. Uh, I'm not afraid to talk about advanced techniques in a basic class ever. Any Anyone that, um, I, truly, I would rather an LR3 student be on here talking about our class than me. Truly, that's how I am. I, I would rather hear it from them than me tell people about our class. But I think what you would hear um, is, um, you know, I, I think they would say these are solid people. And, and I'll tell you right now, the instructors are amazing people. All they care about is the success of the student, period. We allow zero ego. Ego is such a turnoff to me. Um, and there, there's a lot of it out there. You know, you can get that in other places. There's no doubt about that. Um, we don't spend a lot. We do. A, um, one of the coolest moments, I had a 68-year-old guy. He brought both of his sons there. And, and he was starting to have some health problems. And you could tell he was slowing down. And this, this weekend meant a lot to him. This LR1 class he was in, this was several years ago. And he comes up to me at the first break at the first break, um, which I don't take many breaks. I tell the class, raise your hand if you need a break because I'm not stopping, you know. <laughs> um, we, get, we have so much to cover. We just jump right into it. But we do this, what we call the introduction. The introduction, I don't care how long the introduction takes. There, now, the rest of the day, I've got a plan. I want to be here at 10 o'clock. I want to be here at 11:30. I want you know, I've got a plan. Everybody looks to me as where we're going, you know, where we're going next. Um I'll lay that out to the instructors the night before what my plan is and then they execute. You know, they execute the plan. Um anyway, I mean they're just amazing guys, amazing friends first of all. Um but this this guy comes up to me um this told me everything right here. It told me because if, if, you, if I'm not doing something that is helping others succeed, why in the world would I do it? I'm that type of person. It's got to be working. The system has to work or we're going to change it. We're going to make it work or, or we're not going to do it. Um, it needs to be worth their money, you know, every penny. He comes up to me at the first break and he says, the first 30 minutes 
was worth all the money I spent. That's when I knew, you know, he got it. He, he could tell we were going to care for these people throughout this weekend and they were going to be successful. We're going to be right there with them. Anyway, that's extremely important to me for people to know that we're not there to, and a couple of times I will tell a couple of little stories. Um, my wife always jokes about my little stories, you know, <laughs> um, but she's heard them before, you know, and, um, but like target ID, we'll tell a story on target ID. Um, target ID is humongous. Um, I mean, it's huge for a hunter. And I'll tell you this, it's huge. If you're shooting a, a mule deer at 600 yards as well, it is a major responsibility that you properly ID that target. Make sure there's not a doe laying in front of that buck. We might want to let the buck stand up instead of shooting him in the bed. Because, they're, you know, if you can't see the target clearly, that is your response. So it gets into target ID. That's a major responsibility, obviously, in a combat area and in a hunting area um, for a couple of different reasons. But for an ethical hunter, um, which is all I'm around, um, these folks are solid ethical people and they want to do it right. They respect the animals we hunt. Um, and have a great love for them, just like everyone else. And uh, so target ID is one of the biggest, biggest things. Anyway, so we'll throw a couple of military stories in there, but um, nothing really more than that. And we're moving on, but they're always going to have some relevance to the class. So when you do, uh, I'm kind of curious, because I want to talk, I do want to talk sure. about your uh, your hunting and how, how you roll the classes into that so when you sure. guys finally have you know your graduates that go through some of your other classes and you get into your actual long-range hunter from the intro to to the long-range hunter that that one is set up to where you can do the hunt or is it just in preparation of hunting yeah so lr3 so um when when someone graduates lr3 they have come through all of our classes at that point um, and LR3 is really a hunting-based class, by the way, and I'll get into the actual group hunt. The group hunt is just eight people. It's a voluntary deal. I mean, we put it out the year before, typically, maybe even a year and a half before. You have to put these out early so you can be drawing preference points and all this good stuff. But, I mean, I have alumni um, drawing, uh, just putting in preference points in Wyoming, in Colorado, year after year after year. I said, uh, I've said it years ago. If you want to go on a group hunt, start building your points now. Uh, and then start saving up, um, you know, for a group hunt. And um, and then I'll put it on our Facebook page. We have a little um, alumni-only Facebook page, uh, Facebook group. And I'll put it on there. Um, typically, I let them know about a week before. Uh, or two weeks before what the hunt is, the details of the outfitter, where it's at. I, and I do all the, the legwork with the outfitter. And so these people are just trusting me to do the legwork. Um, I have been bit in the rear on that once <laughs> um, on, on the desert mule deer hunt, but it, it was still a great hunt. But um, <clears throat> anyway, um, outfitter wasn't, he was less than to be desired. Um, just by some of his choices there, but 
any, anyway, um, we do the best we can to vet the outfitter, uh, do our due diligence, and then we report back to them and say, this is what we put together. And, and truly, this idea came out. It's like, Denise and I want to go on this hunt. Why do we not want to invite them? And so when I tell an outfitter, you tell me if you want six people or eight. This is the initial conversation. And then I think I could probably bring you eight people if that's what you want in the camp. You know, as long as you can take care of that many people and, you know, it's a good hunt. Um, or if you tell me six, then I'll get you six. Uh, you tell me what you want. And then, and then, um, but once I advertise that, it's typically full in an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. Just on Facebook. It's like, I'm in, you know, and they just do a verbal commitment. And then I tell the outfitter we're good. And then they go direct with the outfitter from there and they, they send their deposits and start communicating with the outfitter. And then I help them with their tags uh, or the draw. Um, I've become familiar with especially Wyoming draw. Um, I'll help them with that. Colorado is a little weird, but I can get through that one as well with them. Um, and then we go out there. But um, so when we go out there, um, I will try to find when we were going to Wyoming for five years in a row to the same outfit. Well, he and I had, had um, found a ranch, a ranch owner he knew, and we leased it. We leased it for two days and we would do um, this extreme long range hunting class. And it was really just scenario based. Um, and then um, one day off of horses as well which was super cool um, because they got to know their guides. It was a big deal. And their guides got to see the ability because they, they get a lot of people out there that miss animals all the time. <laughs> yeah. By From a an rifle. outfitter. <laughs> yeah. Slap a scope yeah. on it. Yeah. Oh man. Don't yeah, know the dope. A, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Zeroed at a hundred yards or 25 yards at a pie plate and then head to Colorado. Yeah. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But, um, but you know what? I bet you that person um, may not know better. You know what I mean? They've, they've hunted at it. Like you and I here where you're at is probably fairly similar to here. I mean, yeah, hundred yards, hundred yards is a pretty long shot here yeah. where I live Same. Um, on a white, white tail. Yeah. It's, so, it's pretty thick woods, most of it. So, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's, if that's all they knew, so hopefully the outfitter can educate them before they come out and say, hey, you need, you know, most of them say, I would love it if you were proficient out to 300 yards. That's what most outfitters will say. Um, and then um, the guides kind of get used to different trajectory of a 30-06 and a you know, seven mag and a 300 wind mag and they're like hold 12 inches high. And this is how they talk to their, their, their client. But when these guys, we put these guys behind spotting scopes and taught them how to spot. We taught them how to read trace. We taught them mills. We taught them MOA and they were communicating like our alumni communicate. I want them to communicate the same. I don't want them to say, come up four clicks. I want them to say, come up one minute of angle. Right, uh, because four clicks on that scope is different than that one. That was a mill scope. This one's a 
you know, um, this one's MOA. So it's really pretty simple how we teach that. But I mean, like, um, in that case, he would say, come up one minute of angle. This guy would say, come up 0.3 mil. Um, it's the same, same effect downrange. That's the same effect. That's 600 yards. That's that what we just told him to come up on elevation on the, the left rifle over here. One minute of angle is six inches at 600 yards. And then over here, 0.3 mils is six inches at 600 yards. It's the same end result. You just need to know how to communicate effectively. So we taught these guides this. It was amazing. Uh, it was really cool. Um, but that's not really um, a scheduled class. That's a like a private sign-up thing, six to eight people every other year or so. Um, but uh, backing up just a second, LR3 is an amazing class. Um, we've changed it a bit where now it's a backpacking class and they, they camp out. We camp with them. Um, <clears throat> and then it's on foot all over the properties. And, um, you know, there's some land nav, um, teaching them how to read map, map and compass, um, how to filter water. Uh, we have a survival company that comes in, a good friend of mine. He comes in and teaches um, some wilderness first aid, um, you know, what to do, um, how to build some shelter. You know, if you're in an emergency situation, uh, fire, um, really kind of the four elements, you know, water, shelter, fire, food, all that kind of stuff. But um, that's in there as well as we move to and to and from different target areas. But we'll get to a target and look at the vegetation you're around. I mean, you think about it, you get out west, prone is really hard to find. Yeah. Laying on your belly is hard to find when there's sage and grass in front of you. So we teach them how to shoot off the tripods, how to shoot off of their backpack, um, tripod with like a hog saddle um, device or off the backpack, real hasty. But you can form a very solid position. Um, and I want to train beyond what their their hunt's going to involve. I want to train, I mean, if they're, if, if they're very comfortable with a five, 600 yard, yard ethical shot if that's their comfort zone i want to push them out to a thousand twelve hundred yards why not double it that's what we train to i always train kind of double the distance um in in general um at least beyond the distance so anyway good so stuff what what course is that then that's the one that's that's lr3 long range precision rifle three the extreme one or just the no the ex the extreme hunter not to confuse that the extreme hunter is not a um are you talking about the one we do in wyoming yeah okay so that's a separate that's just a like a alumni thing from yeah, that's the hunt people that's okay the hunt. okay and then yeah. so that's the long range precision and you guys are actually doing the backpacking thing on that or is that a different one then well so when when we go on the hunt that's typically um on horses with the guide but we use backpack in the um i think you're you're referring to a couple of different things okay. so if you look at the are you looking at the website i did, did you see yeah. the website yep. okay and it says extreme hunter lr3 mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's what you're talking about. So, um, yeah, I got confused there. My apologies. There, um, there's there's two paths to LR3. Every other year we throw in. I should have added this detail. Every other year we throw in Extreme Hunter, and Extreme Hunter is a backpack class only. It's on foot the entire time. There are no vehicles. Okay, um, and that's the and one. That's with the land yep. nav and all that built into that's it. That's right. Okay. That's, that's what right. I was getting yep. at. That's what I was trying to figure yep. out. I, okay. I thought I had confused that. My, my fault. No, that's pretty cool anyway. though. That's, that's definitely uh, something that is kind of taken for granted these days, the whole land nav. Oh, yeah. Because I'm going to admit it. I'm terrible at it. I have all of my goodies at my fingertips, all the modern day convenience of exactly. everything. But, you know, I've always thought about it. Man, what if, what if my battery dies or what if I forget my GPS and I only have my phone GPS <laughs> battery tell, dies? Tell me that. about it, brother. Yeah. Tell so me about it. that's uh, one thing I definitely do want to learn at some point is the whole shooting an azimuth, finding my way, all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's it's definitely good. cool. It's good to have it. Uh, and I, I tell you, man, you're exactly right. You, we take it for granted until we, until we lose it one time one time we lose that our gps is is gone it's dead our phone dies which you know as well as i do an iphone does not last in the cold weather <laughs> no it just doesn't some and, of them uh, won't even take a charge i've noticed <laughs> exactly so this is something man we better test this before we go out west and that's what lr3 extreme hunter is all about these people, we know them so well by the time they get to LR3. I mean, they're great friends by the time they get through LR3. Um, and uh, now there's a bit of intimidation going into that class. There's, there's a bit of intimidation. Um, and uh, I have a lot of little side conversations. They'll call me and, or send me a text and say, hey, give me a call when you can. And I'll call them and say, hey, what's up, brother? And like, man, tell me about how many miles we can be walking. <laughs> you know i mean truly i, I want to do well in this and and um i get it i totally understand and that's what keeps us fit too i mean i'm 48 years old um and i need to be out doing this too i mean i'm leading them or one of the instructors and i don't let brian lead them um brian Deathridge, he and i were in iraq together the guy's a stud you put a backpack on him he is gone i they don't want me to let him lead them. Trust me. <laughs> he was an instructor at the school too. And uh, you, you want to wear a class down, put Brian in the front. Um, and that's not what we want to do here. Um, I mean, we're teaching civilians of all ages. Um, we want them to be successful. So we don't want anyone to get hurt. So I lead them um, and I'll set a pace. And then uh, with Brian, gladly takes the back and he's just you know back in the old days he'd be fonching at the bit to be in the front but he understands and uh anyway it's great it's just good friends and great training and so what i, I wish i could draw a picture or let people see a picture of the terrain is is extremely realistic terrain um and the different stages. I mean, really, it's like a a big on foot um, match. 
it's like going to a, a match that is, um, you know, you have instructor instructors right there helping you succeed. It's not about um, a competition, but the different stages that you go go to, um, and it can be twelve stages in a five mile area. You know, with different target exposures, different directions, um, one hundred and eighty degree different wind to the next target. I mean, it's crazy. Um, that's how you learn. Because if if you, you know, here's one concept. I'm certain you'll agree. Um, so if you and I go to the range tomorrow, and we start out at 100 yards, we t- check your zero, and then we do the come up for 200, and we could use our phone ballistic app. We could use our Kestrel device, which is what I use. Uh, most of our students use Kestrel. Definitely by LR2, they're using the Kestrel. Uh, LR1, they come with all sorts of stuff. A lot of phone apps, you know, and then it's fine. Trajectory come-ups are not the hard part. We can get through that. Um, but a Kestrel is really an easy button, you know. Um, it takes a little bit to get used to it, but it tracks the the, the um, uh, standard atm- atmospheric conditions, density, altitude, temperature. Density, altitude, and temperature being the most two uh, important numbers that it tracks. Because as we move uphill or downhill in the mountains, our density altitude is all the time changing. Um, and that is what the bullet feels in flight. Um, the higher the number of density altitude, the less drag factor on the bullet. So that's extremely important. Or we're going to have a high shot or a low shot on target. So we have to understand density altitude. Uh, we go over that in the most basic class we go over all of this stuff but um anyway as this is so important um lr3 is that testing ground before they go out west it's so important to get you know um to get all this worked out and uh it's good stuff it sounds like uh like it's pretty good. Um, I want to kind of touch on because um, I've heard you talk about some of the shots and stuff, and I want people to understand that you know taking these courses, doing all this stuff is preparation, and then how you can actually put it into application. So um, I know some people might think it's unethical or whatever, but I sure. want obviously we've went into detail the amount of work that goes into it and the breakdown and we've talked about the courses and everything, but you want to just touch on some of the animals that you've, you've taken and, and the distances. Sure. sure thing. So, yeah. And, and I'll throw a disclaimer out there too. You and I talked about this just briefly beforehand and we really scratched the services on the, on the details of this, of the classes, but um, there there should be a ton of preparation before a person goes out west and tries to do any long-range hunting. Um, and to back up a notch or two, back up to that perspective, that respect amongst hunters. Um, you know, this is this is where I want to say I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna hold it against a bow hunter for taking a 50 or 60 yard shot. If he's prepared for that, he or she is prepared for that shot. They have tested it in the wind. They have 
trained on their knees on um, out of a stand, whatever, standing, kneeling. They have trained in the rain, um, in the snow, whatever. They have done their their duty, you know, to the animal that they're hunting. Uh, because it's a huge responsibility. The last thing any of us want to do is wound an animal. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I don't care if it's 100 yards, it's going to happen. Um, we all have those stories um, that haunt us today. But uh, I think it's perspective. I think we have to um, let's give each other a little bit of respect there. And, and um, uh, But I, I'll tell you this. You know, I, I killed a bull at 1,058 yards. I'll throw that out. It's a first-round hit. Um, I had to do a follow-up shot uh, and another follow-up shot. And um, the first, this is the problem with with long range. You're, you have a very narrow window. So this bull was in a, uh, an opening. We had seen him the night before. Um, he was in an opening and, um, he's probably, um, 60, 60, yard, 60 yard open spot. And there was Aspen on the right and some, uh, dark timber on the other side. He's standing there feeding, uh, extremely calm. And, um, I pulled my Kestrel out and, um, got it done. I could not get closer. Um, I mean, I could have. But it, you know, um, I was right on the edge of, um, it's really hard to describe. If you can imagine a river in between um, two, uh, it's a real deep valley with high ground on both sides. He is at the same height I am. He's on the left side. I'm shooting over the river at an angle down almost almost parallel to the river to get to it that makes sense if i can kind of visually take you there with me and i'm on the edge of this um pretty pretty steep um side here well i mean truly it's boulders in front of me and and pretty vertical so it would have probably taken us two hours to get around that to get closer it was just one of those points where um, the outfitter was definitely long range friendly. He knew me. We had been hunting together for several years. Um, he had confidence in me and, um, he knew that I took a lot of, um, I took it extremely serious. And he said, this is it. He said, I've got a five by five below us bugling. And this is the day before the last day. And, um, you've got a five by five below us. Uh, bugling but we can go after the one we came here for and uh so let's go after and so anyway i got set up on my backpack and with a modified prone position um trying not to slide down the hill and i kind of needed tent stakes to keep my body from <laughs> sliding down the hill. it was a, little, a bit compromising situation but i'm used to that and um, that's what you're going to find yourself in so you better train for that that's what LR2 and LR3 do. It's it's all almost well, LR3 is all above prone shooting. There is no prone shooting in LR3 except for the one mile shot. We'll we'll go prone for one mile, but um, and LR2 is leading up to that. 
you know, it's familiarization training leading up to it. There's a mix of prone and, and uh, tripod backpack. So anyway, um, checked my wind and uh, took the shot. And today, you know, I've learned a lot since then. This was quite a few years ago, probably five years ago. Just thinking back, 2016, maybe somewhere in that time frame. Um, thinking back, I mean, what would I do today? I think I would respond differently today. And, and I think that's maybe even just a bit more maturity. Um, it's the first time I've ever said that to anybody. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, truly, um, I'm just a no cards up my sleeve type of guy. Um, I think I, I would have responded differently. And here's what I would have done. If this was today, I would have tried to get within seven to 800 yards. Um, you know, the hit probability in my training routine is what I'm looking at. If, if I cannot hit that, uh, I mean, a bull vitals, it's pretty, pretty big. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty big for a bull vital. Um, you're talking, depending on the size of bull, the angle he's standing, um, from the back of his lungs to the, uh, before you get to, we've got to be careful with the shoulder, that kind of distance. We want to stay away from bone and go double long, just like an archer, you know, an archer's looking for double long. Um, is he shooting this arrow? You know, um, he's going to be compromised if he hits bone. Same thing at that distance because your, your muzzle velocity is slowing down the moment it leaves the muzzle. So those are all my, that's my thought process before I get there, before I do the hunt. I'm going to have a plan. This was not in that plan. It was not the goal. It was not the goal to have a thousand yard shot. It just happened and I made it happen. Um, but looking back and then doing it again, if I could do it again, I would do it at 700. You know, I would just get closer or wait till the next day, you know. Um, I, I want to caution people uh, about long range, um, long range hunting. Um, it's a major responsibility. And here's, here's what happened. I want to tell you this part. So I shot the bull, good shot. The guy immediately says he's hurt. You, you, he's a good hit and he's on a, a spotting scope. And so, and he and I had shot together a bit. So that was nice, you know? having somebody you've already communicated with. Um, and he's already, I mean, he spotted me at 1200 yards before on steel, you know, so we'd worked together quite a bit. That's huge. Um, there's, there's a lot of guys that, that they don't, you know, they don't know how to communicate that way that they've not had that kind of training. So anyway, um, this bull immediately runs into the Aspens. And so now I see his tail and I see his ear and he's standing there and he's, he, you know, he's not dropping. He's standing there and he's like, he's not going anywhere. And I said, well, I want to, I want to put him down. Well, it took a few minutes before he took like one step into the opening. This is the problem when you're long range. And my heart was beating in my throat at that point. And, and I said a little prayer to us and just let me get this bull down immediately. I do not want him to suffer a bit. So, you know, that's, that's what can happen. Um, 
when you're looking downrange at that kind of distance, you have narrow windows. That's the problem. Um, it's just about any time on the range you can hit a target, a good center mass hit within two shots. But animals move and they move fast. Um, just like him. I mean, that was a, he was into the tree line within a second and a half, it seemed like. I mean, he was just, and I watched him. I was reloading while he was on the move, uh, preparing for a, a very quick follow up shot. Um, I wanted to put to any real quick, shooting a 300 wind mag. <clears throat> anyway, um, he, he did take a, um, a bit of a step forward out of probably a 12 inch window. And so got it done. But what if, what if he would have stood there, you know, and, and if we would have got on our horses oh. and tried to get to him and truly when, when um, I put him down and we did, we went down and got on the horses. We were above the horses, probably 300 yards. We had run up this mountain and, uh, I bet it took us an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes to get to him. Cause you don't just ride straight anywhere in that country. You know, there's switchbacks. You have to go back to cross the river and, you know, you got beaver dams all over this river and it's dangerous for horses. You have to go back to a safe crossing area. So anyway, it's just a mess getting to him. Um, and it always is. Every time I've ever um, experienced a long range situation, it's a mess getting to him. And so if you unfortunately wound one, luckily we've had center mass, or not center mass exactly, but we've had good first round hits, good second round hits, done deal. Um, type of thing, but you can get in a compromising situation there real quick. Yeah, I and can so I caution people. I can imagine because, I mean, there's been times where bow hunting or even shotgun hunting, and you're up in yep. a tree stand, and you shoot a deer, and by the time you get to the ground, <clears throat> the terrain has changed because you're on a different angle, looking yes. at it and going, "Wait a minute, I thought." And you start walking towards that animal and you go, wait a minute, I thought it was right here. And then you turn and it's, you know, 20 yards to your left or right or whatever. It, it happens. And I can only imagine, yeah. you know, you're, you're compounding on that at that point. Big time. So, yeah, that's something that definitely needs to be. It, it's, so obviously when you hit it, yeah, you want it to go down for sure. I can imagine oh, yeah. that that's something because that would make me sick knowing oh, that yeah. you put it down, but you just couldn't find it because it wandered, you know, however many yards or before it went down. Yeah. Yeah. And you put that perfectly too. I mean, you, I think back to when I was a kid, um, I didn't have buck fever when I shot my deer. I had buck fever when I was looking for my deer. <laughs> that's, that's when it started. I would be shaking, you know, and excited and always, I mean, even now when I shoot a whitetail, you know, I get a little bit, not as shaky as I used to, of course, but, but it's never during the shot. I can get that done really quick and, and, and usually really efficiently. But then I get the buck fever a little bit, even now, when I'm looking for them. And I can track your deer better than I can track my own. It's that kind of deer. Yeah, because there's not that connection that, yeah, exactly. that, that moment. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I totally but, agree with that. I get that. But as you were making that statement, I'm thinking about, okay, let's go to our last known location mark the last blood and start doing little circles. Well, 
the way you put that, you know, you times that by 10 or by a hundred, you know, you're compounding the situation. And, and uh, so you better have an extremely good landmark of, of the area where near the blood's going to be. Because even if they go 40 yards, um, like my wife's bull went 40 yards, about 30 or 40 yards, he was piled up. Um, he was done. And, um, uh, you know, that if, if we didn't start in the right place, we would have never found that bull. But look, I mean, we had a great landmark. There was like a little dead tree next to a, a lone a lone tree in the middle of the field. You know, it's a great landmark. Right. And even zoom in and take a picture of it. I mean, I like visual representation because when you get over there, um, I hope you did some homework before you get over there. Um, it takes a long time to go back type of thing. So I, I think it goes with any, all of us have stories. Bow hunters have stories. I have utmost respect for archery hunters, traditional, whatever. Um, my son loves to archery hunt. And, um, and I, I've archery hunted in the past, but really just didn't have the time. With everything I had going on, you know, you really need quite a bit of time to, to spend out there. Um, Usually I whitetail hunt about five days a year, um, consecutive. And then maybe um, I'll sneak away Thanksgiving morning and be, I better be back on time, <laughs> that type of thing. You know, I just yeah. don't have a lot of time um, to go be sitting in a stand every morning, you know, archery. I, I would love it. And I have a lot of respect for it. But they have the same challenge too, you know, of a little bit, too far forward or a little bit too far back it's we're all in the same we have the same challenge and we're trying to shot placement is our goal whether it's long range uh, and long range for some could be 400 yards um, for me I do not have a goal I, I don't know that I'll ever shoot an animal again at a thousand yards and I've never said that before either um, but I think I'm, I'm maturing on that. I think I'm, I'm, I'm really digging deep and, and trying to um, look at those hit probabilities. I don't, you know, once you've done it, I want to back up now and say, wait a minute, you know, let's, let's just back the range up 700 yards. Um, I could feel extremely comfortable with that, but I tell you this on the training regiment for that, um, like our hunt in Wyoming this year, the training um, when I go out, I do not walk it out. Like I was about to talk about a minute ago, hundred yards, 200 yards, shoot a shot, go to three, shoot a shot, go to four, shoot a shot. That's easy. That's fairly easy walking it out like that. Now you want your cold bore. One exactly. Shot. Yeah. Yeah. One shot, lay down, get out of the ranger, lay down in a compromising position, maybe off backpack or sitting off the backpack and punch that 700 yard target first shot hit it hit it again with the second shot and then load up and go do it somewhere else that's the way you're going to train for that type of thing not running down the range running down the range is not going to be obviously we do that a lot in training we run the students down the range um, but that's when we're building a data book we're building a dope book 
uh, we're, we're verifying data um, and building data. But now, you know, if you're going out west, we need to go validate the data. Yeah. Ron, I'm thinking that this is a perfect point to put put this to bed for the night. Um, awesome. I, I appreciate you talking. Obviously, I'm going to have to talk to you again. We're going to have to get you back on here because I have a feeling we could do this all night. <laughs> I think so. Good. <laughs> but Luke, it's it's been an honor, man. I appreciate you, and I wish you the best on the rain, too. Hopefully, yeah. the flooding stops around there. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so why don't you tell people real quick where uh, where they can find you and where sure. they can find everything that they need to know about what we talked about? <clears throat> sure. Okay. Um, so on the for the website, just go to Google and type in D period, R period, long range concepts, uh, DR long range concepts. You'll, you'll see, um, you'll see our website. Forgive the old YouTube site. Um, I'm not active on YouTube. A lot of those videos are super old. Um, our Facebook, um, Facebook page, very active on that. You'll see, um, downloads happening in the middle of a class. Um, a lot of times, um, very active there. We'll do some, a lot of videos there. Um, so a lot of, um, up-to-date content there and then Instagram as well. We started Instagram a couple of years ago, kicking and screaming, but we did it. And, um, and we're, I, I'm better at Facebook than I am on Instagram. I'm learning Instagram, but, uh, a lot of cool friends on there and meet a lot of awesome people. So it's, um, uh, Social media is, is, is really, um, you know, there's good and bad in anything, but i tell you what, we're seeing the good, you know, we're seeing, we're meeting a lot of solid people. Um, you know, I know you were on some of those live videos too, and it just, just great people. So it's, it's been, it's been a blast. I've enjoyed it. And, uh, we're going to keep on, we're going to keep on training Luke. Loving it. I like it. I'm going to have to get out there for sure. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Yeah. Yep. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so you much. Bet. And uh, we're definitely we're going to have to talk again. Sounds good, Luke. Take care and, and take care of that family. Talk Alrighty. to you soon. You too. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.